Uh, good morning and welcome to Adult Sunday School. I am uh, coming out of the bullpen to teach Sunday School today. Uh, Mark told me he had become an atheist over the weekend and he just couldn't, no, that's not true. Not true at all. Um, he had a family emergency this week and wasn't able to prepare. And so he asked me to prepare and I want to teach this morning on the topic of joy. Um, which I think is a very lost art in the Christian life is living in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, so Nehemiah says. Um, Jack Miller, who's one of my favorite teachers, used to say, uh, God has sentenced you to a life of joy. God has sentenced you to a life of joy, both in time and in a more full way in eternity. Uh, but Jack Miller often quoted Galatians 4, I think verse 15, where Paul asked the Galatian church, where is all your joy? Where is all your joy? And so this morning, what I want us to do was to begin in John's Gospel and just look at a few verses that speak of joy. There are a number of places you can go. Joy's all over the Bible. But for our focus today, we will begin in John's Gospel. Look in chapter 15. I'm not going to read all 11 verses. He begins by talking about the organic relationship between a believer and himself. We have union with Christ by faith. And through that connection, we receive from him life-giving sap, as it were. And one of the things we participate in as we live in union and communion with Jesus is joy. So let's begin in verse 7 of chapter 15 in John's Gospel. If you abide in me, in my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let me read again verse 11. This is the highlight. These things, everything I am teaching you from chapter 14 on, the Upper Room Discourse, I am teaching you, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Chapter 16, um, let's look here, and we're going to be, begin reading in verse 16, where Jesus explains he's about to leave them and they will experience sorrow but that sorrow will be short-lived a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me some of his disciples said to one another what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to my father so they were saying what does he mean by a little while we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said, 
Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. John 17, just uh, the high priestly prayer, verses 10 through 13. All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Then look in 1 John chapter 1. There's something being said here about us participating in Jesus' joy. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that what? Our joy may be made complete. And so biblically speaking just through this little survey we are sentenced as it were to a life of joy and so what I want to talk about this morning is what joy is not. Secondly, what joy is. Third, how we get it. How do we get joy? How do we lose it? And finally, the joy of the eschaton. Uh, what will we experience in the end? And that's a pretty comprehensive way to kind of look at a topic. Uh, not original to me. But uh, let's think about joy and how to experience the fullness of joy this morning. You know, I love sports. I've always loved sports. And I'm not particularly a hockey fan. But I did notice that the Vegas Golden Knights won uh, the playoff game, number seven, to continue in the series for the Stanley Cup. And I am sure, as I'm standing here, that many people experienced a rush a thrill, a joy 
at the victory. Uh, but maybe sports is not your passion, but you don't have to look far for other sources of what I call faux joy. Faux joy, that's fake joy, not real joy. We careen from thing to thing, hoping the next pleasure will give us the emotional high that is mistakenly called joy. Faux joy makes you smile for a moment, but just for a moment, but leaves you empty and searching again and before very long, you're hungry for it. You're not satisfied. It doesn't deeply um, fill the hole, as it were, in your soul. Here's a few examples of what I call fake joy. Number one, we spend more time than we should chasing the temporary high that purchasing and possessing gives us. We shop in order to fill the whole in our soul. And now it's so easy, of course, given shopping online, all you have to do is one click and you bought it and it's coming. And coming pretty quickly depending on who you buy it from. And it does. It's a, it's a sense of pleasure, but it's so short-lived. Retail therapy? <laughs> That's funny. I'll have to write that down. Let me write that down. The next time I do this, Retail therapy. All right. We eat more than we should. And craving uh, the short shelf life of the mental and physical buzz that food gives us. Here's another one. We entertain ourselves too much hoping that the numbing joy of fantasy uh, worlds will help us cope with the real world we are in. I know many people during COVID who were locked in spent the whole time doing what? Streaming Netflix or other television programs, trying to amuse ourselves to death. We work too much hoping that achievement will make us feel good about ourselves and our lives. We're seeking for security. We're seeking for a sense of, of fulfillment, a sense of being somebody through our work. We, we, we make work, we try to make work do more than it ever could for us. Or we depend on people too much, searching for an inner sense of well-being in a relationship. One of the dangers of marriage, the principal danger of marriage, in my opinion, after looking at it for a number of years, I've been married almost 41 years, is uh, idolatry. You begin to look at your mate as someone who will do for you only that which Jesus can do. And so a lot of our conflicts in marriage are we're expecting the other person to save us and give us joy and be for us a source of joy. Nobody can do that for you. And if you're a single person and you think marriage is going to answer all the longings of your soul, um, you're wrong. It won't. It wasn't made to do that. Real joy, however, is more than just a temporary elevation of our emotions. In fact, you could say that real joy is fundamentally more than just an emotion. Joy, and this is towards your first definition of joy, joy is an inner peace and rest based on what you know to be true, resulting in a life of gratitude and expectancy. True joy is something inside. It is a sense of security. It is a sense of being grounded in hope. 
It is a sense of soul satisfaction. I am of the generation that sang the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I am sure that Mick Jagger still can't get no satisfaction unless he's had a conversion I don't know about. But you really can't, no matter how hard you squeeze this world to get a drop of satisfaction, you're never going to get it. Not that way. So real joy is not merely a feeling. It is that, but it's more than that. Much, much more than that. Real joy is a lifestyle. It's not the result of things happening around me. That is, it's not merely circumstantial, but a sturdy rest and peace that I bring to the things around me that change the way I think about them and the way I interact with them. Real joy is vertical. It results from being in a relationship with the creator and ruler of the universe who designed us and made us for himself. It's not the uh, result of, um, or it is the result of being in a relationship and resting in his sovereign plan for the world. I bring to the things around me uh, that, uh, excuse me, real joy is rooted in a belief that what God has told us is reliable and accurate. And so, one of the things I could say about real joy, it's a radical recognition that God is working his unstoppable, wise, and gracious plan, and he will not relent until he has finally finished it. Real joy recognizes that God's victory is our victory. Real joy looks up to God and beyond to eternity, resting in the certainty of his power and plan. Even though at moments it may be confounding and hard, real joy is not inconsistent with suffering. Real joy. God has enlarged our hearts enough as believers to where we can weep and grieve and lament and experience the depths of sorrows and at the very same time, in the very same heart, we can experience this sense of growing joy. And that's why I often say most Christians who are rooted in the gospel uh, really are able to experience a sense of peace and rest no matter what comes to our lives. And when, when nothing appears to make sense to us, and often that's the case, you can awake with the confident joy that God and his plan is marching on and that he will win, therefore we will win since we belong to him. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look at the things that are seen, not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. An unwavering joy that does not melt in the face of difficulty is found only in union and communion with Christ. The psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that's what real joy is. But how do we get it? 
Well, the way we get real joy is to realize we don't have it. <laughs> we don't have it. We're missing it. Uh, we've lost it. We've lost our way. We've lost them. How do you get it? How do you receive real joy, the kind of joy that I just talked about? Well, the first thing we need to know is we need to go back to creation, fall, redemption, uh, already, not yet, and then consummation. That's a great way to look at anything in the Bible through the lenses of the biblical worldview. God created and made us for joy because he made us for himself and he made us to connect with him and experience joy. And the Bible tells us that he took Adam and Eve and placed them in a pleasure garden called Eden. And you remember the text says that in the cool of the day, the best part of the day, they would walk together with the Lord and experience deep fellowship and joy. They were, lack of a better word, centered. They were at complete rest. They were content to be with God. There was no um, resistance or rebellion toward that. But we know that after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3, which I like to call the big lie. The biggest lie that's ever been told in the universe was told by the devil appearing as a serpent to Eve in the garden. And I'm just going to give you the posy edited summary of what he basically said to Eve. He basically said to Eve, you will never be happy serving God. You will never experience joy obeying God. You are missing something. The big lie is you can find joy outside of a relationship with the one who made you and the one who gave himself for you. That is the biggest lie of the universe. And what that does is thrust the original pair into sin, which ultimately you see it in their behavior after the sentence is passed or before the sentence is passed. Rather than moving toward God, they're afraid of God. Rather than enjoying a walk in the cool of the day, they hide themselves in the tree. And their lives begin to fall apart, all because they believe the lie that what? God's holding out. He wants you to be his subjects and jump whenever, you tell, whenever he tells you anything. And you are never, ever going to be happy. You're never, ever going to experience joy if you obey God and do what he says. You'll be a miserable human being. What you need to do is be autonomous. You need to make your own laws. You need to do what you want to do. And don't let him stifle who you are. And the human race has been believing that lie from then on. There are people right now who are like the prodigal son. <laughs> and they can't wait to get out on their own and swing and just have a great time because my parents have been stifling my freedom of expression. And so one of the things, I remember when I was a kid, it's exactly how I felt when I went to college. Finally, I can get out from under their clammy hands and swing and do what I want to do when I want to do it. If I want to eat one cookie, I can eat one cookie. If I want to eat a whole bag of cookies, I can eat a whole bag of cookies because my mama's not standing there going, I can't believe you're not eating any more cookies. Now, that's minor, but that's exactly the attitude. I can find fulfillment and expression if I can just be free of the tyranny 
of God because I resent it. I don't like it. And real fun. You see, you old stuffy Christians, you don't know anything about joy. Look at you. You know, I, I had a friend who was a Presbyterian. He was riding uh, city, um, what do you call them, cable car in New Orleans. And he said one day a woman got on the bus and she said, Sir, are you feeling all right? He said, No, I'm not sick. He said, I'm just a Presbyterian minister. <laughs> he said, We always have a look of mild disgust upon our face. As you've heard me say before, weaned on a dill pickle. But how do we get this joy? How do we get this joy? That's a very good question because uh, C.S. Lewis calls joy the serious business of heaven. We have lost it. We have lost our way. And you know what ensues? It's always idolatry. It's always we make God substitutes. In attempt, we enter into a covenant relationship with stuff God has made, thinking it will feed our hungry souls and give us the inner rest, peace, and security, and hope, and satisfaction that only comes from being rightly related to our Creator. Joy. Joy. Joy is precious. Joy is at the heart of satisfied living. And so, the, uh, the big lie put into motion idolatry. And here's what the book of Romans basically teaches in chapters 1 and following. Our root problem, Rome, Paul tells us in Rome, is an unwillingness to glorify God, to give Him the centrality which He is due. For they knew God, they neither glorified Him nor gave thanks to Him. Therefore, we choose created things to become our gods in order to deny God's control over our lives. Each of us chooses a created thing to live for and to worship instead. Romans 1.25, worship created things rather than the Creator. We have to worship something. We cannot live without worshiping something. It is as much, it is part of the image of God in us. We were made to worship. We cannot stop. But we'll either worship him or we won't. We'll worship what he made. Therefore, each life is distorted by a life lie. At the base of all of our choices, our emotional structure, our personality, is a false belief system centered on an idol that something besides God can give us the life and joy that only God can give. Jesus says, I have my joy I want to give you. But because of the nature of idolatry and in our fall. And this doesn't go away when you become a Christian. I wish it did. I didn't even know I was doing it till I became a Christian. That is idolatry of the heart. It is such a powerful thing. Now, how do we get this joy? How do we get it? Well, most of you know what I'm going to say here. And it's called the gospel, the good news, the best good news you'll ever hear. Jesus lost all of his joy so that we could have his joy. He experienced anguish and misery beyond description so that we can have peace and inner rest and hope and satisfaction. One wise wag said, the opposite of joy is not misery, it's boredom. It's boredom. 
Have you ever been really bored? Some of you are saying, I've been bored my whole life. I would be inclined to agree with you. Now, I told Mark that I was somehow going to tie this into the attributes of God. And uh, I think there is something here that... I, I've been reading a book by Michael Reeves called Rejoice, Rejoicing in the Fear of the Lord. Uh, Michael Reeves, if you ever get a chance to read anything that man writes, at this point, you better do it. It's good stuff. But he talks here about fear and its connection to joy. That is godly fear. Let me explain what fear is. The simplest definition of fear in the Bible when it refers to us fearing God as believers is to stand in awe at the reality of who he is and what he's done. Mark's teaching on the attributes of God brings me great joy. Why? Because fear and joy are twins. I get a thrill. <laughs> I get a thrill out of hearing people teach anything having to do with the Bible, but in particularly focusing upon who God is, because He so far transcends everything I am, and yet at the same time, He's imminent, He's near, He's approachable, He loves me, He wants me, He wants to be connected to me. But when I study that stuff, I find welling up in my heart, on the one hand, a tremendous sense of awe like Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, where I become undone. I fall apart in, in the awfulness of God. And awfulness there, I mean standing in the fullness of awe, of sometimes not being able to speak, because I stand in awe in view of the reality of who this God is that we love and serve. But fear and joy are connected because at the same time I experience that exhilaration of joy. This is what Reeves says. Speaking of the happy thrill and exquisite delight of this fear is surprising language. Yet scripture is clear that the fear of God defines true love for God so it defines true joy in God. In the same way that Christ's delight is the fear of the Lord, so the fear of the Lord is a pleasure to believers, for it's about enjoying His fearfully lovely glory. The living God is not moderately happy, but fearfully happy, and when we have this fear, we enter into the joy of our Master. Doesn't that seem like a backdoor way to get to joy? Huh? You want to increase your joy? Increase your fear. <laughs> I don't, you don't need to tell me that, Pastor. I'm already afraid. Yeah, in the wrong way. You're the one, and I'm the one, that the Scriptures all, always say what? Fear not. Do not be afraid. I am with you. But the fear of God I'm talking about, again, is standing in awe at the reality of what we see when we look at Him. Which is why the more you understand the depths of Scripture the more joy you have, the more grounded you become, the more fear you have toward God that is that healthy fear. Oh, there's so much here I want to read. I like Spurgeon. I kind of like what Spurgeon says here. He says this, Believers adore and worship the living God with a joyful, tender fear, which both lays us low and lifts us up very high. 
For never do we seem to be nearer to heaven's golden throne than when our spirit gives itself up to worship him whom it does not see, but in whose realized presence it trembles with sacred delight. Wow. The right fear of God, then, is not the minor key, gloomy, flip side to proper joy in God. There is no tension between this fear and joy. Rather, this trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the sheer intensity of the saint's happiness in God. In other words, the biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of joy that is most fitting for believers. Our desire for God and delight in Him are not intended to be lukewarm. And I wanted to read one other thing from Reeves about from a Puritan. He also quotes the Westminster Shorter Catechism one, but a guy named William Bates said this: "The consistency that is between the fear of God and faith, love and hope and joy, each he explained is an aspect of that one work of grace in the soul, and therefore fear cannot be contrary to joy, far from it, for the joy will most kindly rejoice in God when it's filled with the awful admiration of his goodness. For this fear does not contract the heart as grief does, but enlarges the heart in God's praise. The point is not that God's goodness alone overwhelms us in our enjoyment of him. Believers will rejoice and tremble at all that God is. So where do we get joy? First, by connecting to the source of joy which is Jesus. And not enough can be said about that. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life joys foreseeing coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting, foretasting the coming joy. But how do we get joy? How do we get it? Or how is Jesus joy to us? Or how does he become for us total joy? Well, everything in, there is everything in Christ to make us joyful. There's an abundance of grace to subdue our flesh. There's overflowing sympathy to soothe our sorrows. There's a sovereign efficacy in his blood to cleanse our guilt. There's infinite resources to meet all of your needs in his encircling presence. There's his ceaseless intercession on your behalf and his loving attention to all you feel, fear, and need. Christ is everything. And we are his joy. Do you remember in the book of Hebrews where it says, looking to the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured all suffering, even of the cross. Now what's the joy set before him? Does anybody have any idea what the joy? Going to the cross, joy? No. The bride. The bride. Us. You. Me. We are his joy. And we get to experience his joy. Uh, Mark talked about this in his attributes. I've talked about it before too. It's something called perichoresis. This is the idea of the dancing God. That the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are in such deep uh, communion and union as uh, the threeness and the oneness. And they participate in pouring out love to one another. 
basically what the gospel means is God has enlarged the circle and taken us in to experience the joy of that dance. That's what the gospel is. Best we get here is a foretaste. Foretaste. A sip. Just give me a sip. <laughs> a foretaste of what glory will be. I'm going to move back, so I know you're doing the camera there. Um, but how do we lose joy? Well, I don't want to tell you this, but it's very easy to lose it. <laughs> how do we lose it? How do we dampen it? How do we shrink it? How do we compel it to withdraw from our souls? There are several hostile influences toward our joy. One of them would be temptation flirted with. Perhaps some of you are experiencing severe temptation. You're drawn to do something that your heart agrees is absolutely devastatingly wrong. And there are a number of reasons you wanna, don't want to do it, mainly because of what you might lose, but I hope some of it is because you don't want to lose the depth of your enjoyment of God. But temptation comes and appeals to that part of our nature that basically says you can't be happy ultimately doing what God commands you to do. In this case, it'll be all right for me to break a command to be happy. I watched a little series. I'm ashamed to even say I watched it because it's worse than Hallmark. But it's something called Virgin River. Anybody here seen Virgin River? It's a romance kind of novel. Don't watch it, which means you will. <laughs> the whole subtext. Pam thinks it's worse than the worst Hallmark card ever written. She's sitting there watching it with me. She's saying to me, why are we watching this? I said, I don't know. COVID, that's why. COVID's done it to us. The whole subtext and undertone of that series is you have a right to be happy. And it doesn't matter what you have to do to be happy. It's right to do it. It doesn't matter how many lives you destroy. It doesn't matter how much you wreak havoc in other people's lives. You have that fundamental right to be happy as you define happiness. And so far, I hadn't seen anybody in that miniseries that had any joy. None. And I probably won't watch season two just because of what I just said. Another thing that dampens our joy is tampering with sin. Besetting sins that we compete, uh, that we do over and over. Indulging in worldliness. That is not, you know, what was it? Uh, is it James that said friendship, or maybe John, friendship with the world is enmity toward God? When the world, in all of its rebellion, we find ourselves more identified with the current corporate flesh, which we call worldliness, than we do with the kingdom of God. Idolizing a creature will do it, Means of grace being slighted. What are the means of grace? Can anybody name any means of grace? What? Reading the Word? Prayer? What else? Sacraments? What else? Fellowship? You know, when you disappear from church 
It doesn't happen to you right away, but you can get really hard really fast. Really fast. And that hardness is hard. And uh, you can find yourself way, way far away really quickly. And so a neglect of the means of grace, which God has provided for us to keep our joy uh, funneled through Jesus. Undervaluing Christ is another way to do it. Legalism and antinomianism is another way to do it. Because <laughs> both are self-idolatry. One tries to overuse the law and the other tries to silence the law. And either one of those will kill your joy. If we could be perfectly obedient to everything God has commanded us to do, we would be the most joyful people in the universe. That's why heaven's going to be such a joy. Because as Mark says last week, I think it was, Woody Woods used to say, what is the greatest thing about heaven? Woody Woods will sin no more. He was saying more maybe than he knew. Or maybe he knew that. I don't know. But in heaven, there will be un broken joy it will be pleasures forevermore at his right hand so the scripture says um say what psalm sixteen eleven. that's right so the joy of the eschaton well let's just look at the book of revelation chapter 20 notice i didn't say revelations it's actually chapter 21 we're not we're not going to talk about the millennium today Uh, every time I think of the word millennium now, I think of bluebell ice cream, which I can't get anymore in Nevada because of Listeria. Somebody did that. Had to be the devil. But they had a new kind of ice cream that came out around the year 2000 called Millennium. <laughs> Some of the best ice cream you'll ever eat. But with that said, look at, look at chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That means not that the new heaven or the new earth won't have any seashores. That means the sea, we looked at Paul's shipwreck, that's always an image in the Old Testament and an image of what? Chaos, of evil, of destruction. There will be no more chaos. There will be the perfect order of God, the new Eden. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And then look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Everything that makes you miserable and sorrowful and grieve will be no more. And we will live with unbridled joy forever in the presence of the Lord. And we will have the ability to see that the best thing we can possibly do is at the sight of our Savior. Some of them call that what the beatific vision uh, we will see him and be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
I think there's something there about seeing the reality of who Jesus is gives us the joy to be like him. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, but he was also the most joyful person who ever lived. That's all I have. Are there any questions? Yes, Ed. commentary in Table Talk for Saturday and Sunday wasn't that most people rush into apostasy, but they tiptoe into apostasy. That, you know, it's very incremental. Getting into, you know, a discussion or relationship with someone you shouldn't, or little by little, you know, so just to guard our hearts. Yeah, little foxes spoil the vineyard. I, heard, I read a sermon by Spurgeon on that one time, and he talked about how it's always little steps little steps away. Any others? Yes, Beverly. It's on my desk. I think it's called Fear and Rejoicing or Rejoicing and Fear. Yeah, Rejoice and Tremble. You got it on your phone? Yes. If Michael Reeves wrote it, it'd probably be a good idea for you to read it. He's good. Any others? Well, thank you for your patient listening. I hope this helped. Help me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word uh, and the light that it cast upon our deepest needs. And Lord, uh, we... We know, but we struggle. We know where to get joy, but we also fight so much in this fallen world. We live in the overlap between the two ages where the powers of the age to come have entered our life and changed us, and yet at the same time we live in this world which is so antithetical to everything that we really believe and we struggle. We live in the tension of that overlap and we look forward to the day when you will come again and take us to be with yourself. And then we will inhabit this new earth and experience Eden all over again. And even better and even more. Now, fathers, we prepare for worship. We pray that you will prepare us to worship. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.